Good morning. It's, a, it's really special to, one, be here together this morning, and two, to be ministered in such a way, and even by your children. It's, uh, it's special how the Lord uses that, and special for me since four of them are mine. But so thankful for that, and thankful for you, and just the... Uh, your desire to come together, to join together as the saints, to hear the word of the Lord preached. And not only to do that, not only to be hearers of the word, but as James says, to be doers as well. And that's what we desire to do as we come together this morning, as we open up God's word. You can open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 20. Two weeks ago... We celebrated Easter, celebration of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. As the most important point, the most pivotal point in all of human history, what you think or believe and how you act or behave, how you respond to what you believe will not only affect the trajectory of this life, but the life to come. We talk about this in different ways. We use different terminology, but death is the doorway to new life, to a life of eternity. And the question is, what type of life will it be? One of immeasurable blessing, as we talked about, where the grace and the mercy and the blessing of God far exceeds anything we could ask or think. Or one of immense immense inestimable, immeasurable suffering at the never-ending cup of God's wrath as it's poured out upon you. That's it. Those are the two options. There is no other option. And we celebrated Easter two weeks ago, but here's my question for you. How much has that impacted you these past two weeks? How much have you thought about Easter after it passed? How often have you thought about the resurrection specifically over the past two weeks? I think the sad reality is that whether it's inside or outside the church, the message of the gospel has far too little impact on our practical theology. That is what we do each and every day. It has too little impact on how we live, how we act the rest of the week or year for that matter. And this is not a new phenomenon. It's not a new problem. In fact, this morning we're going to learn from some of Jesus' disciples how to be unmoved or unaffected by the gospel. You heard me right. How can we be unaffected by the gospel or the preaching of God's word? What do we need to do if we are going to be completely unresponsive to God's word? Now, our obvious goal is to strive to do the exact opposite. But we're going to learn it by learning first what it takes to be unresponsive to God's word. Read along with me, if you would, Matthew 20, beginning in verse 17. And Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took 12 disciples, the 12, aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, My cup you will drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the celebration we've had this morning around the resurrection of Jesus Christ and around your word which came and dwelt among us that life and light of men. Father, help us this morning. Teach us, instruct us that we would walk in truth, that we would understand what it looks like to be unaffected by your word so that we may be deeply moved by your word, that we may respond in worship, in obedience, in love. In your name, amen. Jesus and the disciples had come down from Galilee, moving into the territory of Judea, beyond the Jordan, that is, east of the Jordan. It would be on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, east of the Jordan River. And when you see the term up to Jerusalem, it's not a reference to geography so much as it is to elevation. Jerusalem is set up on a hill. So whether you're coming from the north, the south, the east, or the west, or northwest, southwest, east, you get it. You're going up. It's on a hill. So anytime you see that reference up to Jerusalem, it's a reference to Jerusalem being set upon that hill. This particular trip takes them westward around that northern portion of the Sea of Galilee as they enter the area that is not beyond the Jordan before they can turn south to Jerusalem. We know from our study so far that Jesus' disciples likely numbered well over a hundred. At times, the crowd swelled into the thousands. But within this larger group of those who would be called disciples, who would be faithful followers, we also know that there was a smaller group, the twelve. These twelve, called apostles, endowed with unique authority and power we learned about in Matthew chapter 10. And as they're setting out to depart, Jesus does something noteworthy. He takes aside the twelve. We often find these twelve in close proximity to Jesus, often serving Him and doing His bidding, routinely asking questions, engaging with Jesus in a unique way. Much as Peter stands as somewhat of the spokesman for the twelve, these twelve stood as the spokesman for the rest of the disciples. 
They're the ones who joined Jesus in the smaller boats when they crossed the Sea of Galilee. And it's these 12 Jesus pulls aside for special moments like this. And in this moment, Jesus delivers the most important, the most crucial, the most sobering news the world has ever heard. And he refers to himself in the third person using a title that as we've looked at previously, emphasizes the reign of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, the Son of Man, that is Christ himself, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. He will be handed over first by one of those twelve, Judas Iscariot, who when introduced to us for the first time in Matthew 10, is introduced with that ignoble title of betrayer. One who hands over. Next, after Jesus is condemned and handed over to the chief priests and scribes by one of the twelve, that is Judas, he says he'll be handed over from there to the Gentiles, who will thrice inflict suffering through mocking, through scourging, through crucifixion. These sufferings, culminating in the death of Jesus, are made impotent, though, when Jesus proclaims that after three days, he will be raised up. This is a remarkable reminder. And it is a reminder. Because this is the third time Jesus has predicted, or we might more accurately say proclaimed or preached, his death. The first was right before the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 16, and the second was shortly thereafter in chapter 17. It is a reminder that this is God's plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. And he repeats it three times. The news is bittersweet. On the one hand, it's incredibly sobering. But it's also life-giving. It doesn't end on a note of sadness, but on a note of victory. It's the hope of rest longed for by Lamech and those in the generations following Adam. It's the realization of the message Noah would have preached before the flood. It's the long-awaited promise of victory over death from Genesis chapter 3. The reversal of sin and the curse. And the anticipation of all mankind. It is the gospel. It is good news. But it comes at a heavy, heavy price. The death of the Son of Man. What would you do with this news if you heard it? How would you react? How do you think you would respond? Well, how do the twelve respond to this news? We don't know exactly what was said in those moments that followed that. But the very next verse does give us insight into how at least two of the disciples responded. And if you want to look away now, now's the time because it doesn't get pretty. The ugly picture Matthew provides is a perfect example of what it means to be unmoved, to be unchanged by God's word. With the hope of the gospel and the weight of Jesus' death hanging in the air, what happens next absolutely shatters the mood. Verse 20 tells us that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that is James and John, 
who ironically are called the sons of thunder, now they're hiding behind their mother, came up to Jesus, asking for her sons to be exalted above the other disciples and given a place of honor on Jesus' left and on his right as they sit on thrones in the coming kingdom. What in the world is going on? What type of presumption comes and asks such a question? Well, if you've been paying attention, you may recognize that the mother of James and John is actually one of the larger, is is part of that larger group of disciples. She's been following along this entire time, or most of it. In fact, we know there were many women in this larger group of disciples. Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56 say that many women were there looking, this is at the crucifixion, from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and and, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is likely the one called Salome, who actually goes after the crucifixion with others. We also know from Luke 8 that there were many wealthy women who were disciples and helped provide for the needs of Jesus and the Twelve. And as a disciple, we might recognize that her question isn't so arbitrary after all. It's not completely out of left field. It may be presumptuous, but it's not completely out of left field. There's a context to it. Because her sons had heard just what could have been hours before, could have been a couple days, had heard Jesus' promise from verse 28 that they would sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So she already knows that her two sons are going to be on thrones in the coming kingdom judging the tribes of Israel. That was in response to Peter's question. She had also most likely heard the promise at that same time about the greatness of God, the parable that followed, all that was to come for those, specifically these 12, who followed the Lord. Now, just a little bit more background. John was likely the youngest of all of these 12 disciples, probably not even 20 years old at the time. He was between 13 and probably 19. So this was a very young man, Explains how he beat Peter in the foot race. Peter was the oldest. He was the youngest. This very young man had just been told he would reign on a throne in the coming kingdom. What is he going to do? Well, of course he's going to go tell his mom. He's excited. You'd call your mom, I'd call my mom. There's a context then for this request. They're likely envisioning Jesus seated in the middle with six thrones on either side, and she's asking for her sons to be immediately on the left and the right. Proximity to the throne meant power and authority. This is still done today. At state dinners, there's an established formula for seating every elected official, every foreign diplomat and dignitary. In fact, it's called the order of precedence. In the United States, the president holds the highest rank, followed by foreign leaders, the vice president, governors, speaker of the house, and it goes out from there. And you're considered more important the closer you sat to the host. 
The further down the table you go, the less important you are. In fact, that's what made King Arthur's round table so unique. They were all considered equals. Now think again about what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Matthew to again provide more context. Jesus has given special treatment to three of these 12 disciples. Who are they? Peter, James, and John. Even among the 12, there is what is often considered this inner circle of these three, these three whom Jesus had join them on the Mount of Transfiguration, these whom he calls apart in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. So a precedent has already been set that these three among the 12 are particularly important and unique. So this request makes a little bit more sense. There's a context to it. It's not completely out of left field. But still, it comes across as incredibly presumptuous and self-centered, doesn't it? That's because it is. And it's also clear that James and John are the real instigators here. It's not their mom. Why do I say that? Well, notice Jesus' response. When he says, are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink, who responds? Who's he addressing? He's addressing James and John. It's almost like Jesus hears her question. He looks at the mother. Then he peers around, sees James and John standing right behind her, and just ignores her and starts to address them because he knows you're the ones who started this. Look, too, at the response of the other ten. Who do they get upset at? They didn't get upset at the mother. They got upset at James and John. They got upset because of their efforts to have prominence over them. Not all that unlike Joseph's brothers who grew angry when Joseph spoke of his dreams indicating that his brothers along with his mother and father would bow down. And that didn't turn out too well for him, humanly speaking. In fact, we'll see next week, Jesus steps in quickly to nip this in the bud and avoid the whole throwing him in a pit and selling him to the Midianite trader. But right now, notice that the real conversation is taking place between Jesus, James, and John. Their mother's out of the picture, In fact, she's not even rebuked. It's her sons who are trying to solicit special favor with Jesus. And Jesus' response is that of someone who knows that the persons who are talking, the persons asking the question, have absolutely no clue what they're talking about. No awareness of what's going on. In fact, his response is really quite gentle considering how selfish they are being in light of what he has just said about his death and resurrection, what he has just taught in the parable, and what he has just said leading up to the parable. Not only are James and John exhibiting a spiritual dullness and blindness here, something we are more used to seeing with Peter's questions. Peter, for one, has to be thrilled it's not him on the hot seat for a change. But there's a spiritual blindness and dullness to what they've been taught, to what they've just been taught. So much so that they have no clue what they're even asking for. It's like the child who wants to hold a big kite for the first time, not knowing how strong it is or how strong the wind is and that it would carry them away. They don't know what they're asking for. Or the American who thinks they like spicy food 
visiting a Thai restaurant for the first time and asking for their spiciest level. You don't know what you're asking for. Jesus then uses a metaphor to tell them what they're asking for, one that is steeped in Old Testament history and imagery. It's pregnant with meaning. But at this moment, James and John are spiritually blind. Even when he uses this metaphor, even when he says, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink, they respond far too quickly. Yes, 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 we can drink the cup. In other words, maybe there's, a, maybe there's hope here. Maybe we're going to get what we asked for. Not even considering the implications, the Old Testament promises and imagery that comes with the drinking of, a, of the cup. Because you see, while the term cup has one or two positive meanings in the Old Testament, the overwhelming usage of to drink the cup in the Old Testament means to experience the pouring out of God's wrath. At least, probably more than this, but at least 14 times in the Old Testament, and a lot of times it's repeated within that same context multiple ways, it appears at least 14 Old Testament contexts with this connotation of judgment and the wrath of God being poured out. For example, Job 21.20, let his own eyes see his decay and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Or Isaiah 51.17, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of his reeling you have drained to the dregs. Or Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. This cup, Jesus speaks of figuratively is a reference to the crucifixion and the events leading up to it. God's wrath against humanity directed toward his son as the ransom for many. In fact, the night before his death, Jesus will inaugurate what is about to take place within an actual cup, which he says, figuratively speaking, holds his blood in the wine and this blood was shed to satisfy God's wrath. The cup is to remind us when we, when we take communion, when we celebrate Lord's Supper, we celebrate his death and his resurrection. But that cup reminds us both of God's horrible wrath as well as the precious blood shed so that we might have hope. As the children learned last week, a scapegoat, a way of escaping God's wrath through forgiveness of sins as our sins were placed upon Christ there on the cross as the punishment was paid on our behalf. And this has been offered to anyone who will confess their sins and cry out for forgiveness on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. In fact, if you are here this morning and have never done this, then you need to understand that you are standing below the cup of God's wrath, which may spill out at you and on you at any moment. The invitation this morning is to step out from under the cup of God's wrath by repenting of your sins. Do not let today go by without doing that. 
In a somewhat ironic twist, Jesus tells these sons of thunder that while he cannot offer them seats on either side of himself in the kingdom, he can guarantee one thing, not what they asked for, but that they will indeed taste of the same cup of suffering as they share the sufferings of Christ by being identified with him. Jesus had already described this if they would have paused before coming with their presumptuous question. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Paul repeats the idea in the New Testament later, saying in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, partaking in his suffering. How do we take partake how do we partake in the sufferings of Christ? If we can't climb up on the cross with them, how do we partake of them? How are we, as the verse ends, conformed to his death? Well, Peter tells us, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though it were some strange thing happening to you. Why? Because these are the fellowships of the suffering. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, our cross may not look exactly like Christ's. Our sufferings may be slightly different. But if we suffer for Christ's sake... We are sharing in his sufferings. We have to be careful, though. Because as Peter also says, we need to ensure that we suffer for doing what is right. We're very presumptuous people. We like to think that any hardship must be that I'm suffering unjustly. But there's plenty of suffering in this world that's just simply the result of living in a sinful world as a sinful person. There's also great suffering we can bring upon ourselves through sin. I don't get to claim that I am sharing in Christ's sufferings if I'm in prison for robbing a bank. I'm not being persecuted if a police officer writes me a ticket for speeding. I sinned, there's a consequence. No, the sufferings of Christ come from obedience and doing what is right. And those are the only sufferings that will be rewarded because they share in the cup. And yet through all of this, all of Jesus' response, James and John seem blissfully ignorant and unaware. Even worse, they do not realize how contrary their request and thinking is to what Jesus has just said and taught. They are completely unaffected, unmoved by Jesus' early words. Now, Jesus doesn't correct a misunderstanding here about thrones and a kingdom. There will be a kingdom. There will be a rule. But it's for those who will occupy certain positions, God alone decides. By the way, this is the exact same lesson we looked at last week. It's what Jesus just taught in the parable of the landowner. Look at verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? 
And it's the lesson Jesus will go on to teach in verses 26 through 27. Look at the, the similarity there to what we've just learned in the previous parable. The first shall be last, the last will be first. The one who desires greatness must become a servant to all. What Jesus is doing with this response is highlighting that they, James and John, are acting like the laborers hired first thing in the morning. That's who James and John are here. They are those laborers hired first thing in the morning. And now they're comparing themselves to others, just like those laborers did when the pay was being handed out. And they want something special, more than what the others are receiving, just like those laborers who are hired first thing in the morning. They want special power or honor. Jesus exposes their heart. They aren't looking to serve, but to be served. But how did they get here? How did they get to this point? How did men who observed the transfiguration of Christ get to this point where they're asking this type of question? How are they so unmoved, so unaffected by all that Jesus has been saying? Well, we really only need to look at our own lives to answer that question. How many times this week have you found yourself doing the opposite of what you know is right? Thinking the opposite of what you know is right. How many times this week have you put yourself first instead of others? Your needs, your schedule, your desires. There is a danger in becoming so accustomed to Bible teaching, teaching or even the message of the gospel itself that we become just as unaffected by the word of God as these disciples were that day. So here's a quick list on how you arrive at such a state with the hopes that you do the opposite. This is how you cultivate insensitivity, callousness, coldness to the word of God. First, make yourself the most important person on this earth. Don't serve others. Make everything about you. Secondly, make the accumulation of stuff your priority, whether it be money or possessions. Thirdly, worry about what people think of you. If you do this, if you are consumed with worry about what people think of you, you are likely safe from being moved by the word of God. Here's a good one. Constantly compare yourselves to others. Think about what they have and what you don't have and envy them and covet them. Finally, for the list this morning, and there's more we could add, overestimate your spiritual strength and ability. Assume you are qualified to rule on the right and the left of Christ. Assume, like James and John did, that you deserve this. And list is just some of the ways you drown out the voice of God. How you ignore the word of the Lord. But here's the problem. No matter how good you are at drowning it out, no matter how callous you become to the word of the God, 
just like Belshazzar, who ignored the warnings that that evening the Medo-Persian Empire would take his kingdom still through a party. It didn't change the fact that what God said came to pass. The kingdom was taken from him that very night. Ignoring it, becoming callous to it, running away from it, does not change the truth. Like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden from the voice of God, you can only escape for a short time. If you refuse to bend before the thundering of God's word, you will break under his wrath. Have you ever noticed that in the large open plains where the wind blows fiercely, very few trees, if any, grow? But the long, tall grass does just fine. Why is that? Because it bends before the wind. Where the tree is unyielding and often breaks, the grass will bend to the wind. It will submit to its will, whichever way it may blow. The lesson for us this morning from the response, the unmoved response to the word of God by James and John at this moment is to learn to listen for the voice of God and bend and submit before his word. That's the lesson for us. It's to do the opposite of each of those things that create a callousness, a coldness, an unaffectedness to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning. Father, we also thank you because we realize we are so often James and John in this situation. And we're thankful because we see what you still do through them and the way you still use them. We see the tenderness of your response even here. Father, we thank you that you are slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, gracious, not wishing for any to perish, that you are a forgiving God, one who longs us to come and to confess, to repent of our sins and have restored to us the joy of our salvation. Help us to do that. When we find ourselves unaffected, unmoved, help us to humble ourselves before your word.